Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, episode 311, Thursday, September the 7th. 2023 take two we had a I know, little, I know. <laughs> little bit of a glitch in fact a big glitch recorded for a while. yes so we will um we will see mark oh um as as i said in the first take um i was going to say <laughs> how are you mark but i know you are struggling a little bit do you want to tell our listeners our good listeners um briefly what what's been happening with you well despite um the five vaccinations and um, and routinely I've been so good with the masks. I'm upset with with myself that uh, on the trip from Cairns down to Newcastle, um, I did get into the airport and the plane without a mask. And just a few days after we arrived down here to see the family, I started to getting snuffly, and it, and it really developed over the next couple of days to the point where I had really bad headaches and um and I was really sick for a couple of days Brendan haven't been sick for ages um although I have to admit that uh I am a bit of a sufferer from the man flu uh, they do you know I, I I get them much worse than everyone else in the family um but Kate did get a bit sick as well so we've, we've both been battling through but fortunately we're uh, coming out the other side we're on the mend the dreaded coronavirus, Mark. Oh, um, yes. Um, I was so upset when I had two stripes on the rat test. Yes. Um, well, you're getting better. That's the most important thing. And um, hopefully you won't suffer any of the any long-term effects that some people have reported. I'm sure you'll be fine. You've got very... Very good constitution, Mark. Um, like I said, I have I've gotten a bit afraid because I know a few people who have had chronic fatigue-like syndromes or uh, other aspects of long COVID. So I hope I can avoid those. You were kind enough to suggest that I shouldn't worry too much about the uh, the foggy brain that some people report because, geez, that it would just be like normal. Uh, no, I did not say that. You suggested that. Yes, safe recovery for you and quick recovery for you and your wife, Mark. And uh, yeah, I've touch wood been fortunate. I haven't tested positive yet. So, and I'm hoping to stay that way. But I suppose playing the odds that probably will acquire it at some stage, or maybe I have and I just have not have not exhibited any obvious or only minor symptoms, Mark. That, um, but every every rat test and the PCR tests that I have done have been negative so far. So, yeah. Um, so I think with that, Mark, um, oh, sorry, you are going to say something? I was just going to say, let's keep it that way. I'd be very, very happy to celebrate your uh, um, uh, absolute independence. That's yes. right. <laughs> yes. Me too, Mark. Me too. Virgin. Yes. So with that, I will um, head into my news story, Mark, which um, – I think you heard none of it or some of it, um, and and yet um, I couldn't hear you. So um, I'll go over it again. And uh, <laughs> this one is the uh, well, the live parasite in the brain, Mark. The human neural larva migrants caused by Ophidascus roberts eye, which um, 
is reported in the um, in a paper in at CDC, Mark, and uh, oh. happened here in Australia. And interestingly enough, as I mentioned in our take one, um, a few of the authors there you and I probably know, including uh, somebody I know, Robin Gasser, um, a parasitologist down here in Melbourne, and Jan Slepeter um, in New South Wales, Mark. And interestingly enough, they quote a few a few um, papers from classic Australian authors. And it's about um, this roundworm, Mark, that has a, definitive um, host of pythons, um, Australian pythons, and uh, in particular the carpet pythons. Um, and they do have uh, they do have intermediate hosts as part of their um, life cycle with them. They normally sit in the esophagus and stomach of the pythons. Um, the eggs are ingested by various intermediate hosts, small mammals, um, and which then um, pass through them and then eventually... Um, um, get infected and and humans would only be infected by as considered as accidental host mark and um, this is about a 64 year old woman in in new south wales southern southeastern new south wales and she lived in an area where there were carpet pythons in the local area what confused her diagnosis was initially she had sort of, sort of pretty vague symptoms like abdominal pain diarrhea dry cough and a night night sweats and some changes on the blood. Um, and her her um, workup was also confused with the fact that she was born in England but travelled fairly extensively, including South Africa, Asia, and Europe um, previously. So they were worried if she had she you know acquired something at that stage once um, she was getting worse, Mark. Because they found they did a CT showing showing pulmonary opacities and um, hepatic and splenic lesions and had an eosinophilia mark on a bronchoalveolar lavage um, and they diagnosed her with eosinophilic pneumonia and put her on PRED. Uh, you know, the old put them on bread, Mark, or give them antibiotics. Um, and then she was admitted to hospital um, a few weeks later with recurrent fever and a persistent cough. Um, eventually, um, they ended up... Um, they ended up... Um, doing a CT scan, um, showing improvements in the pulmonary and hepatic lesions and unchanged splenic lesions. Um, and she developed forgetfulness, Mark, speaking of forgetfulness and right. brain fog, Mark, uh, worsening depression while continuing the PRED, and she was on a few other drugs as well. Um, but finally, um, they did some brain imaging and found a lesion in her right frontal lobe. And a neurosurgeon went, took to his, um, to her brain um, and found, went to do a biopsy and found a live worm there, Mark, which is a, uh, the ascrid was 80 mils long and about one mil diameter. So there we go. Um, so they provisionally identified it as a third stage larvae of Ophidascus rubert. So, so very interesting, Mark. Um, and they think that probably it was because she often collected native vegetation, in particular, uh, um, one, one, um, um, vegetable greens called warrigal greens and, from around the local lake to using cooking and they postulated that um, she inadvertently consumed the eggs either directly from the vegetation or indirectly you know not washing the um, um, veggies or whatever but she's she's doing quite well so really interesting one and it really hit the 
hit the news here in Australia and, and got onto most of the chan- TV channels, Mark, over the last few days. You may have missed it because you were, had your I brain don't. frog. Yes, because you were laid out. Um, um, one other interesting thing, Mark, um, I've just got it out beside me here. Um, just by coincidence, uh, my minor thesis um, for my master's degree was faecal examination of Australian snakes for evidence of parasitism. And I've got a fair few pages on this particular parasite, so I know this <laughs> parasite quite well. Intimately. Um, yes, and just flicking through it that we had, um, you know, I had, I think, 60, 36% of carpet pythons had um, that particular parasite. Um, I surveyed both pet and wild um, caught ones, Mark, um, for parasitism, and um, yeah, um, and it's an interesting one. It's it, you can there's two main ones that we sort of see as those ascrid ones in the Australian pythons, Mark. This this one, the Ophidascus robertsi, um, which has a really deep red sort of colour along it, um, and the other one that um, that um, you need to differentiate it from is Ophidascus morelia, um, and that one has a real herring bone. Um, you know, obvious um, pattern to it when you actually look at it, you know, um, just macroscopically. So um, you could often just differentiate them that way. You know, their egg sizes are a little bit different, um, um, but they do have a bit of a overlap um, when you're doing the faecal flow to them. So, yeah. Wasn't it so interesting was, that um, that she had been treated with uh, ivermectin and albendazole? Yes, and, yes. Um, and the little bugger was still alive. Yes, yeah. Well, with with um, um, you know, they they often um, they're often found in the livers um, of small mammals and birds, Mark, um, um, in in Australia as far as the intermediate hosts with them. So, yeah, very, really interesting. Um, so, so there we go. Um, so, the brainworm, Mark. I've been known to forage for the uh, occasional warrigal green myself, so well, I'll, I'll just make sure I give it a good wash. Be careful. You don't want brainworm. We um, worry enough about earworm, um, but we certainly don't want brainworm. So that's my story, Mark. Human neurolarva migrants caused by Ophidascus robertsi. Well, I think you more. trump mine, but um, mine's a little bit shorter. Just um, a quick study, which... Um, which reveals that uh, dogs respond better to baby talk um, rather than normal adult speech. Um, the researchers uh, were aiming to discover if the dog's brain um, was sensitive to different speech styles um, and maybe didn't understand the words specifically in much the same way that, uh, that human infants um, don't know the meaning of words but to respond to tone and... and uh, and the characteristics of speech, um, and they said that's the you know what they found was that um, dogs had a similar response to infant-directed or dog-directed speech. The characteristics of those two things of obviously the relatively high pitch, um, sing, sing-song nature of the of the speech, um, uh, really got um, the brain activity of uh, dogs um, uh, lit up on the. Uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging machine. Um, it's an interesting study. <laughs> You're a good boy, Mark. You're a very good boy. Well, it's interesting. Good boy. It's interesting that um, that the, in the conclusions they suggest that the voice voice tone patterns characterising women's dog directed speech 
that is the uh, you know this uh, the high pitched sing song voice are not typically used in dog to dog communications, and so it may be a feature, uh, a neural preference that has arisen as a result of their domestication, and that sort of fits because I think that high pitched yippy uh, puppy talk um, is uh, is is definitely something the dogs react to. Um, and so maybe the interaction with that noise is a persistent juvenile um, feature that's coming to adulthood because of domestication. Um, but yeah, it's definitely the case that um, the dogs listen to uh, um, those uh, high-pitched uh, baby talk sounds much more than they do um, deep guttural uh, male-sounding voices. I was trying to say Very. that committing any sexist language to the, the analysis. <laughs> Good boy. Good boy, Mark. <laughs> um, very interesting. That was reported in Communications Biology um, publication. Dog brains are sensitive to infant and dog-directed prosody um, is the title of it, and we'll link to that. At our website, vetgurus.com, where you'll see all the links to all our episodes, Mark. Um, yeah, quite interesting. Two completely different articles there, Mark. Um, so, yes. Um, I think we need to jump into our main topic this week, Mark, because it's a beauty. It's And as you would say, it's a cracker. Uh, you yeah. say it every time, it's a cracker. This um, is a cracker. I, Avian ectoparasites, Mark. So, um, and it's a good one. Um, gee, we could, I reckon we could talk forever on this one. It's, <laughs> a, it's quite a detail. There's a lot to cover here. So, we'll, oh, we'll, uh, yes. let's rip into it. Oh, is it common, Mark? Yes, it's very common. Are it's they um, common? It's, um, yes, it's very common to see external parasites on birds. And, um, and it is common to see them both in, um, the captive situation, um, and in and particularly if you're doing any wildlife work, uh, very common to see wild birds yes, coming yes. in with parasites. Um, it's interesting that I see external parasites far, far less frequently um, and in far narrower spectrum in pet birds. Once birds seem to have um, made the move out of the aviary, out of the outdoors, and they become indoor pets... Uh, it seems that the incidence of external parasites drops, not completely disappears, but drops. Yes. Um, and, um, and so certainly that cohort of birds, it's not always yes. the first thing we're thinking of. As opposed to the, the ones that are outside in the backyard, like our chickens, it's pretty damn uh, common, isn't it? It's, uh, it's a very common. common thing for us to see in chickens, for sure. So... What are the signs, Mark? Do, do, are many of them sort of silent? They just sit in there, those parasites, and not causing issues? That's exactly You've taken the words right out of my mouth, Brendan. Um, <laughs> it is a characteristic of uh, 
external parasites that have evolved for a long time with that species um, to not irritate them as much as we might think, um, and in low numbers in a uh, in a you know a relatively healthy animal um, without much else going on, um, a low parasite load might not even make itself apparent. And I couldn't begin to tell you the number of times, particularly with chickens because they're terrestrial, they're often more outdoors, um, that I'm doing a physical exam, an annual exam on a, on a pet chicken, and I lift those feathers up, uh, run my hand against the contour of the, the plumage, lift the feathers up, and particularly in the, the spaces under the wings, the protected spaces, there'll be a little nest of external parasites crawling. And it's quite distressing to the client who has seen no uh, issue with the uh, the bird? The bird has been behaving absolutely normally, um, not even preening excessively, um, just because that low infestation um, is not enough to set off those reactions. But it yes. doesn't always stay that way. And isn't it amazing how soon after you expose shows them that 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 everybody they starts scratching, start scratching their hair <laughs> their head um, it's it's uncanny isn't it um yeah I'm, I'm starting to scratch myself as i talk about it Mark. so can some now we um, can the opposite happen are, are any of these life-threatening there are i think the, one of the interesting things about external parasites is that um is that they definitely can get to the stage in certain circumstances where they cause sufficient damage um, that uh, particularly the blood-sucking ones, and particularly yep. if they're in the nest box um, and affecting uh, very, very young birds, um, they definitely... And this is a real problem for finch breeders, for example, because uh, those you know, those tiny, tiny uh, nestling birds, a relatively small load of uh, external parasites can be enough to cause a severe anemia and compromise the growth of the young birds. Yes. Um, so they potentially are um, life-affecting or even um, life-threatening parasites, not in most instances, fortunately, um, but certainly that, uh, you know, that is a possibility with and it, it's a that positive feedback loop isn't it if the animal is otherwise healthy and the parasite load is low it tends not to be a problem but if there's anything compromised nutrition compromised husbandry in other ways uh, leads to immunosuppression and then the parasites certainly hop on the bandwagon and finish off the job yes and as we're sort of often taught at university, Mark, the job of the parasite is not to kill the host, is it? Um, most of the time, if not all the time. It wants to survive as well. So let's run through some of the different types of avian ectoparasites, Mark. Well, we'd better start with nematocoptes. That's probably one of the most common ones we see. It can affect um, pretty much any of the cytosine birds. Um, and, and I would say I've seen it on most species of parrots. Um, it also affects uh, chickens and canaries, um, and, um, and it uh, can be a debilitating external parasite. Um, as we know, um, the nematocoptes mite feeds on the keratin, the outer layer of skin, um, but the irritation it causes causes a hyperkeratosis, 
and the skin thickens up, particularly around the beak and feet, um, and then ends up with uh, tunnels through it where the mites live. And so it has this mm, microscopic honeycomb appearance, sort of almost like a bit of coral on the edge of the beak. Yes. Um, and these uh, deformed bits of keratin can um, get to be ridiculously large and can even get to the point where they compromise the bird's ability to prehend food. Um, they cause pain in extreme situations. The damaged keratin can be undermined and infected. Um, and uh, certainly birds, the lesions on their legs, whether they're parrots or chickens, can become uh, uh, so badly infected uh, secondarily that the animals end up lame and, and seriously debilitated. In canaries, it tends to cause some changes to the, the toes and the scales of the feet, which lead to uh, altered keratin production, which is often referred to as tassel foot. It looks like long dangling curly bits of keratin. Um, and so um, there are potentially other things that cause that. But if you have canaries that have that strange curly uh, hyperkeratosis um, on their feet and toes, um, then certainly getting a piece of the material and looking at it under the microscope to rule in or out nematocoptes is a good plan of attack. Mm. And what's our common name for this? Scaly face mite or scaly leg mite, depending yes. on where the lesion is. Yes, and we won't we won't talk about treatment till the end, Mark. I think with all of these, so a little bit of a collective treatment yeah. plan. Yes, our nematocoptes. What other mites do we see in our birds? Ah, uh, the um the red mites or roost mites that uh, um, definitely affect many species, but particularly uh, the um, the poultry. The, the chickens that we get to see. The key thing for, about these guys are that they're less obligate, uh, um, uh, you know, they, they, they don't have to live on the bird. The, the nematocoptes mite just about has to stay on a bird all the time. Um, these are um, roost mites. Um, they tend to spend all their time in the environment um, and uh, run off the bedding or the wood of the roost box uh, over onto the bird at night and uh, suck blood in the evening. They do cause um, some pretty significant skin irritations in, um, in our poultry, uh, yeah. particularly when the infestations are large. And there is a tendency for the legs to become uh, hyperkeratotic and additionally scaly. Um, and of course, because they suck blood, um, the birds can become very anemic. Um, and they may not um, always uh, be immediately apparent because of the way they do the same thing as our, um, our snake mites. They, they uh, spend a lot of time in the environment and only hop on the animal to have a feed every once in a while, a bit like fleas in dogs and cats. So it's um, when we talk about treatment, this is one of the species that we have to talk about our on the patient treatment and the environmental yes. treatment. Yes. Gee, you're on the ball, Mark. Um, what's our next one? <laughs> um, the no orn brain fog orn today. Ornithonysis. Um, the fowl mite. Once again, another blood sucking um, little uh, um, arachnid. Um, and uh, these ones uh, tend to hang on in and about the feathers. Um, they tend to get to the 
uh, featherless areas under the wings, up around the edge of the eye, um, edge of the comb, um, around the vent. Those spaces are usually the easiest ones to see them. Um, they are irritating in large numbers, and so the birds uh, do tend to... These ones produce often um, a pattern of uh, overpreening and plumage damage um, and so it uh, um, it definitely is um, irritating to the birds in when they get to heavy infestations and those heavy infestations uh, can because they're blood suckers can also lead to anemia um, these are the vectors for uh, Borrelia um, and so it's important um, for multiple reasons, for multiple health reasons, to make sure we keep an eye out for them and treat accordingly. I can't stop scratching, Mark. What's the next one? Well, we divide the uh, external parasites up into uh, three groups. Um, the mites, which we've just talked about. The second group um, is the lice. Um, and look, they tend to, the majority of uh, lice that are on birds tend to uh, feed on the skin and scale and down debris. Um, and so they tend to be up in the feathers, um, not so much. Um, there's some that get down onto the skin, but they tend to be uh, lots of species that spend time in the plumage. They, they're mainly, there's uh, not many recognised species that... Uh, do the yep. mite thing and suck the blood. Um, and so uh, they'll cause some frailty to the feathers. So you'll definitely see maybe not absolute feather loss, but just wear and tear appears much more easily on the feathers. So the feathers might have a ragged appearance around the edge. And if you hold these feathers up to the light, Brendan, they often have, uh, you might not be able to see the individual lice, um, but they often have uh, little black patterns in close to the rachis, in close to the main stem of the feather. Um, and if you can sit that under the microscope, you'll often get an excellent image of the ah. the, uh, the lice between the the uh, the veins of the of the feathers. Great tip, great tip, lice. What's next? Well, we the mites. Lice, and then we have the others, um, yep. and the others comprise a you know a little bit of a grab bag of probably yeah. more incidental, um, well, in incidental in terms of uh, them turning up in the veterinary clinic. Um, so we definitely see uh, stick fast fleas, uh, which will get on predominantly on um, on chickens, and they. Uh, are, um, uh, they definitely are blood suckers and can add. And I often find them, you know, the, that debilitated bird that has some mites may well have stick fast fleas at the same time. They um, occasionally occur on other species of birds, but it's mainly the, the, uh, the poultry that we get to see them on. And yeah. the other thing about those that's interesting is they do get stuck to the bird. They once, and we'll talk about treatment as we said, but um, once they get, uh, even when they're killed, they'll still hang on to the bird's body for a few days afterwards. So um, it may, they, an, a treatment may be efficacious, but the stick fast fleas may not fall off immediately. Mm. Mm. 
Next. Well, one of my favourites, Brendan, is the. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm. I'm getting raspy. Yeah. Teeth. <laughs> we're gonna. We're gonna have to do this in two parts. Um. Okay. The, the um. We get in there, Mark. You're doing a fantastic <laughs> job. I reckon we we should we have it have a break, have a drink, and I think I think we can soldier on here, Mark, because we're getting towards the end of the the grab bag group, as you say, of ectoparasites, and then we'll I think we'll just briefly <laughs> co- cover the management, um, the the actual treatments, um, because they they basically work for most of them, don't they? These these two or three sort of products for them. So so our next one was what flies was it, Mark? Exactly, and I want. I was really keen to talk about one of my favourite flies, um, <laughs> the, the, our hyperbosid flies here in Australia. Oh, they they, uh, whether it's kookaburras or tawny frogmouths or um, uh, um, just about any wild bird that'll come in, but particularly those. Uh, um, carnivorous birds, the, they'll um, they'll often carry quite a load of these, and um, and those birds seem to be uh, those flies seem to be very adept at realizing when their host is about to expire. So, um, one of those birds that comes into the veterinary hospital um, that's not doing well, the the, the flies really. Are, like rats leaving a sinking ship, and they frequently find one of the veterinary nurses' hairstyles uh, particularly attractive, <laughs> and and often make a, a a transfer. So you've got to be careful of the buzzing hyperbosid flies in those um, uh, expiring birds of uh, carnivorous birds. They're pretty unusual looking things too. They they're very flat compared yes. to a normal fly, and they're they're pretty tough. Um, uh, sorts of things to they're hard to kill <laughs> <laughs> yes they're um they're strong little buggers aren't they they're they're annoying little flies <laughs> yes and they and they and uh, they're, they're not host specific and um they lay their eggs uh, not on the host and but they can be vectors of significant disease for uh for lots of our birds so they're an important one to consider yes excellent now I'm struggling. So tell me about pigeon fly, Brendan. Pigeon fly. What have we got down here, Mark? Pigeon fly. Well, I don't know much about pigeon fly, um, so I'm just going to mention it. Pseudo lynchia canariensis, Mark, is the um, scientific name for it. I don't know whether I've seen pigeon fly or not before. Have you seen? I it? have not. Okay. Well, there we go. We have pigeon fly. I just pulled that out of a, a little reference mark, so we'll just um, have that mentioned there, and we'll leave it at that, I think. Um, and then we have, um, well, there's other blood-sucking flies um, on different species of birds, Mark, which um, mainly stay on the host, Mark, and, um, and yeah, they lay the eggs off the host, though, um, but once they're... Once they're adults, they're on the host there, Mark, and they can be vectors for various diseases, including including bacterial um, and other diseases, Mark. And I, and I think our last one that we wanted to talk about, Mark, and um, I'd be interested if you want to make comment on this. And, again, it's one that we're, I don't think you see it that often, do you, Mark? The um, ticks, um, including the Ixodes tick, the Ixodes cornuatus. Um, do you, do you, have you seen that often or not? Yes, um, it's surprising. Tick? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ah, um, interesting. So it is a bit surprising. And, look, I think the interesting thing about that is that um, many 
those ticks get to be a decent size and many of the birds can preen them off, particularly if they're in a social group. So I wouldn't often see them in a flock bird. <coughs> I'm so sorry. So which which species just uh, we'll keep it we'll keep it um we'll keep it um fairly quick here, Mark, because you are flagging. Um is there any particular species that bird of bird that you would see the exodies um that tick on? The two species that I have seen it on um, the two common species are, are ducks and uh, chickens that are kept alone. So okay. they do, I think they depend on a bit of aloe preening when it comes to protection from ticks. And so when they're on their own, they don't necessarily get that. We have had a couple of debilitated birds. Um, a kookaburra stood, stands out in my memory. Um, uh, and that bird had a damaged wing and couldn't fly normally. And so obviously spent a little bit of time on the ground before it was found by a human and brought to the hospital. Yep. And, uh, and it had a paralysis tick and was suffering um, uh, paralysis, as all these birds can from um, the uh, Ixodes polycyclus or cornuatus. Yeah. And they do respond, Brendan, while we're not going to... Um, we're going to talk about treatment more generally. Um, uh, I have successfully treated a number of birds uh, that have paralysis tick uh, um, with anti-venom. And you have to be careful. It's a, a serum mm. from a different species, but yeah. um, uh, treatment with uh, anti-serum has been uh, recorded to be Very successful. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, and I can hear your voices going, Mark, so we'll quickly jump on to the, <laughs> the management or the treatment. And I think there's a few a few general comments there. Um, typically the sprays and washes used, but also the especially for the chooks, Mark, the chickens, there's the powders as well, those pyrethrin sort of type powders as well, um, and products that have the pyrethrins, but also the ivermectins, avermectins, moxidectin, Mark, are, are, are sort of the general um group of products those all those ones i've mentioned that um they they hit most of these um you know one or more of these will hit most of these um avian ectoparasites don't they you've hit the um, nail on the head and it's a real the the ectoparasites for me are pretty it's a pretty easy summary and you've made it there the key thing i would say to people is um avoid the organophosphates there are some old-fashioned bird uh, external parasite treatments that depend on things like malathion and whatnot. Yep. And uh, and those things are uh, potentially dangerous, <clears throat> so I would avoid those. Great points, Mark, and I think you're just about out, so we're out of here too, and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time